Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 56 of Goodwill Hunters with Stephen House. Stephen is a professor of economics at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, which just so happens to be where I did my master's. Stephen is also the director of the Development Policy Centre. The centre is a leading think tank on aid and development, undertaking independent research and promoting practical initiatives to improve the effectiveness of Australian aid. I have been reading and engaging with Stephen's work for years. For listeners who aren't signed up to the Dev Policy blog newsletter, you are missing out. I'm certain that after this interview, you'll want to hear more from Stephen. A few weeks back, Stephen and I were on a panel together at the PowerLitClick NGO forum organized by the Kokoda Track Foundation. And following that, I asked him to be on the show. More recently, Stephen wrote an article on our interview with Minister Alex Hawke, which I'll include in the show notes. In today's episode, we discuss the Australian aid program, including the Pacific Step Up, Innovation Exchange, bilateral aid investment plans, and the refresh of the aid policy that's on the horizon. We also discuss the challenges Pacific Islanders face with the Seasonal Workers Program and other labour schemes in Australia. And lastly, we discuss the connection between academia and NGOs and the rise of evidence-based programs along with the notion of aid effectiveness. I hope that many of you working in NGOs will reach out to an academic after you listen to this episode and find a way to work together. As always, I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Stephen, thank you for being on Goodwill Hunters. Uh, Thanks for having me, Rachel. I'm a, a regular listener to your program. Wonderful. Um, and uh, an expert on the topic yourself. So I'm looking forward to hearing your insights. So I think a good place for us to start, um, as you know, we had Minister Alex Hawke on the show a couple of weeks ago. And during that episode, the minister announced that there was a refresh of the aid policy on the horizon. Um, so can you comment on that? Well, it's certainly a, a welcome announcement, I think, from several perspectives. Uh, first of all, you know, whatever you think about the former minister, Julie Bishop, she certainly left her mark on the aid program. But a lot of the ways in which she framed the aid program are no longer, you know, really current, really being used uh, by DFAT uh, or by the new ministers. You know, she talked a lot about aid and economic diplomacy. Uh, she talked about the new aid paradigm. And, and that sort of language just isn't being used anymore, but it's still in the official aid policy. So I think a new framing would certainly be helpful. And then there have been some major shifts in aid policy over the last few years since the last official um, strategy, which was Julie Bishop's one of 2014. Uh, So in the last couple of years, we've had the Pacific step up, meaning more aid for the Pacific. And we've also had this shift towards infrastructure uh, as part of the Pacific step up. 
so it'd be good to see those reflected in our official uh, aid policy. But that said, I think, uh, you know, the government doesn't have a lot of degrees of freedom within which it can manoeuvre. Uh, it's uh, the, the Minister Alex Hawke made clear on your program that government's not contemplating any additional foreign aid. And as I said, they've already, you know, announced their, their major initiatives with the Pacific Step Up and the, uh, the shift to infrastructure. So I don't see a new aid policy as, uh, you know, resulting in a major shift in, in direction. Um, but I think it could be useful to provide overall clarity and also to give some clarity around some specific initiatives. Um, you know, just to give one example, we've had the uh, Pacific Women uh, Project, which is a very ambitious uh, 10-year intervention, um, some $300 million started in 2013. So, you know, that's coming to the end of its life. And for these very long-term projects, you, you need to have um, a good lead period, uh, a lot of overlap. So this is the kind of initiative where the government can uh, give a signal, you know, that, that it's going to keep going in this direction or it's, it's going to shift direction. Yeah, that's a really important point. H- how important is uh, appropriate dialogue and consultation with the NGO sector um, in in developing this new policy? Yeah, sure. I'd say the more uh, dialogue and consultation, uh, the better, not just with the NGO sector, but, um, you know, with all stakeholders. So um, certainly the uh, development contractors have an important role to play. I'd like to think academics should be consulted along the way. And um, there are many others who are interested in the aid program uh, from one way or another. And and to the extent possible, we should also try to get the views uh, of those we're giving uh, the aid to. Um, It's pretty unclear how far the government's going to go in that that direction. Uh, Alex Hawke was really you know, it was, it was great that he spoke on your program. He was, he was really making an announcement about a future announcement. Uh, we don't really know the shape of this review and, and to what extent there's going to be uh, external input, um, you know, either through submissions or any public fora or, you know, having some kind of uh, external panel uh, undertaking any, any kind of review. I mean, that's all uh, still to be, uh, to be revealed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not just um, a new aid policy that we haven't had since 2013. We also haven't seen any new aid investment plans being produced since 2016, despite the plans being deemed one of the 10 benchmarks of aid effectiveness and, and, and yet haven't been updated in a few years. So do you have any thoughts on why we haven't had any new plans and has it had any real implications for the sector? Yeah, it's a pretty curious uh, sort of train of events. Um, here at our uh, development policy center, we, you know, one of our main areas of research uh, is into aid effectiveness, and having a country strategy, you know, is generally regarded as a, a core requirement for aid effectiveness. Uh, I mean, they're not, you know, earth-shattering documents. It's not a radical suggestion to have a country strategy. It's a pretty standard uh, requirement or procedure for any aid agency to set out you know, how it's going to go about giving aid, uh, at least to the major countries that are uh, the recipients of its uh, development assistance. And as you said, um, you know, DFAT certainly got behind the idea of having these country strategies or aid investment plans, uh, as they they call them. And um, yeah, indeed, as you mentioned, said, you know, you can, one of the ways in which you can judge us, one of the 10 indicators for success is whether we produce uh, these plans. 
I mean, a lot of people were critical. They thought, well, that's not really a, a serious benchmark because how hard can it be to write a, uh, an investment plan? But in any case, uh, it was one of the 10 benchmarks and, and DFAT went about uh, around 2015 um, producing all these uh, country strategies. But yeah, when we went and had a look recently, we found that uh, most of them are now, uh, have now actually been expired and no new ones have been produced uh, since 2016. So why that's the case uh, is a bit of a mystery. You know, it's, and, and it's not really clear what's going to happen now. Uh, is DFAT going to wait until now there's a new overall strategy before putting these new uh, country strategies uh, in place? Um, it, is, it is problematic. You know, it's, it's not going to make the difference between aid success and aid failure. Uh, but that said, you know, not having a current aid strategy does reduce transparency and it does reduce clarity. And that sort of lack of clarity ultimately cascades down to individual projects and uncertainty about, well, should we extend this project? Uh, should, we, should we change it? Um, but also, I think it, it's a poor signal. You know, it's a poor signal for DFAT uh, to, uh, first of all, say, all right, these strategies are really important. Uh, we've got to make sure every country has one. Judge us uh, by whether or not we produce them. But then a few years later, uh, just let the whole thing slide and, and not even bother to explain uh, why uh, the, the, the strategies aren't, aren't current. And so, yeah, I feel, well, uh, it's not the biggest issue around. Uh, it is an important issue, and it's particularly important in this era where there's so much emphasis on um, geopolitics and the strategic importance of, of aid. It's important that we you know, keep a focus on aid effectiveness and, and what matters for aid effectiveness, and, and that we you know, insist that it's not just about giving the money, it's not just about being popular, but we should uh, apply continue to apply principles of aid effectiveness. And, um, you know, where we see they're not being applied, uh, we need to speak out. Yeah, and we'll come back to that word effectiveness because I find the difference between the NGO and the academic definition of effective fascinating. So we'll come back to that. But, I mean, we don't know why there hasn't been a new investment plan, um, so we can only theorise. But I wonder, do you think it has anything to do with the fact that the Pacific is being treated as a collective, which has somehow diminished the need for country-specific strategies in the Pacific? Uh, that's an interesting idea. I think you know, DFAT would still say there are large differences um, between countries uh, in the Pacific. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, the, you're right in the sense that uh, it's been a very busy period for the Pacific. It's been a period of total uh, reorganization. You know, first of all, the absorption into DFAT, uh, then sort of just getting, getting that working, and then the creation of the Office of the Pacific and the, you know, the much greater uh, demands on the Pacific region, you know, now that it really has become one of not only our, our top foreign policy priorities, but people say, you know, it really is one of Scott Morrison's uh, sort of top three priorities. Uh, so, yeah, I can see if you were working on the Pacific, uh, you might not have a lot of time to draw up uh, a new strategy. And then if you're not working on the Pacific, um, you know, you also haven't had a very stable environment because you've been... Uh, in a context in which your your aid envelope is continually being reduced, and you're not really certain, you know, whether you're going to have how much aid you're going to have in the future, and so I think that that must also uh, make it difficult uh, to to do forward planning. 
But I mean, that said, it's uh, it's not rocket science to produce these uh, strategies. Uh, it can be done. And uh, if we have that uh, commitment to aid effectiveness uh, and to transparency, uh, it, it will be done. So I don't think, you know, we should let DFAT off the hook by these kind of uh, extenuating circumstances. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, another topic that um, I know you've spoken a lot about in the past is innovation exchange. Um, certainly innovation exchange was probably the initiative that I was most excited about um, of, of recent DFAT. Uh, policy development, say, over the last five years. But I know Innovation Exchange has had very mixed reviews. Um, so for our listeners that haven't heard of it, um, I would define Innovation Exchange as the part of our aid program dedicated to researching innovative approaches to to delivering aid and to funding those in sort of a startup capacity. Um, you may define it differently. So can you comment on, you know, has Innovation Exchange been successful and what may have made it better? Uh, yeah, well, I, I've, uh, I, it is a very important initiative uh, for Australia. Uh, it was really Julie Bishop's flagship initiative. Um, and, you know, she presided over a period uh, in which there were massive cuts to aid. Uh, and in that context, there were, you know, just two initiatives uh, which, uh, you know, went in the opposite direction, that, that were new ways of spending aid money. I mean, this is before the Pacific Step Up. Uh, so those two initiatives, yeah, one was the Innovation Exchange, that was in her first term, and the other was the uh, Health Security Initiative in her second term. So this was the major uh, first-term uh, coalition uh, aid initiative. And, you know, it was announced at the same time as a new aid policy. I mean, that gives you some idea of its importance. So it really was the flagship. So, yeah, it was for that reason I decided to dig into it a bit and um, and do some uh, research as to yeah, I guess how effective uh, it's been, how it's how it's played out since it was set up, um, which must have been in 2014. So I, I did my uh, research last year. So looking at the first four years. Um, so I mean, I agree with you. It's a uh, it, it sounds like a good thing. Um, you know, aid should be innovative, uh, and, and indeed, I think aid has always tried to be uh, innovative. Uh, aid has never been just about handing over money. It's always been uh, about, you know, how can we do things differently? Uh, how can we do things better? Uh, I don't think uh, innovation itself is a is a new idea, but um, you know, I can I'm sympathetic to people wanting to to give that more emphasis. Uh, the question is, you know, was innovation exchange uh, did it go about it the right way? Uh, I guess my review was quite critical uh, of the uh, of the innovation exchange. Uh, and it was really critical because I felt that the initiative hadn't uh, taken seriously the sort of basic principles of aid effectiveness. You know, we can certainly be innovative uh, with regards to uh, new technologies, uh, new ways of delivering services. That's totally fine. But it doesn't mean we should, um, you know, unlearn or ignore the lessons of aid that we've kind of painfully uh, accumulated uh, over the over the decade, and I mean those are things around. Uh, it's good to be transparent. It's uh, they're, they're fairly basic things, right? It's it's about it's good to in you, you need to invest in monitoring and evaluation. Uh, you need to have a long enough time period so you can tell whether things uh, work or not, uh, and you need to be selective. You know you can't uh, work uh, across the board. You need to be quite ruthless in your focus. 
And when you look at what the Innovation Exchange has done, I just don't think it's really it's it's really met those criteria. Um, it hasn't been very transparent. You can't see a lot of evaluations, uh, and it's had a very disparate focus. You know, it's taken on just about every subject uh, under the sun. Uh, I, and I think the you know the one of the, if you dig a bit deeper, like down to the next layer of what what went wrong, you know, I, I think in a way it paid the price for being such a flagship and for being so closely associated with the, with the minister because you know if you're a project that's a flagship and you're associated with the minister well you better succeed but on the other hand if you're meant to be promoting innovation and trying different things then definitely some of what you do is not going to work and i think that's a very difficult balancing act and and or attention and and i think it's a tension that's apparent in how the innovation exchange has played out over the last few years so yeah, that's my sort of critique of the innovation exchange. I think to give uh, the, the the unit or the program credit, it has tried to um, you know learn some of those lessons itself um, and and have uh, improved in particular its monitoring and evaluation. Um, so that's that's a good thing. Yeah, I wouldn't really want to make a call as to whether it should continue or not. I think that would be you know a good subject for uh, uh, for this aid review. You know, what is the future of the innovation exchange? And should it continue as something as uh, as a standalone, or is innovation something we want to see, um, you know, spread across the aid program, uh, rather than uh, having a particular um, sort of institutional uh, home for it? Mm, that's a great point. That would be a really good inclusion for the aid review, and and I yeah, I think that's a that's a very balanced appraisal. I think I would agree that Innovation Exchange makes so much sense in theory and certainly the need for an agency dedicated to researching and funding innovative approaches to aid um, seems vital. But whether we've quite nailed the execution, um, I think remains contestable. I think staying in the realm of aid before we move on to to labour and migration, um, the Pacific step up does mean a step down from other regions of the world and just yesterday you did publish an article on the topic so I'm keen for us to touch on that before we move on from aid. Um, in your view what what does it actually look like in reality when we increase our presence in the Pacific and therefore decrease our presence in other parts of the world? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an unfortunate uh, development and it's not something that's been uh, planned. It's something that has really happened by by accident. Uh, that on the one hand, this government has wanted to cut aid for budgetary reasons, and it's been doing that since 2013. And these are really significant cuts. You know, overall, uh, if you take into account inflation, uh, our aid uh, has been cut by about 30 percent. Uh, so it's the largest cuts in our in our history to our aid program. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, we've got the Pacific step up. We want to give more aid uh, to the Pacific. <clears throat> and, you know, you, know it, it's, it's, you can tell it's an accident because it's, it's, it's just happened recently. When the government first started cutting aid, uh, everyone got cut, right, including the Pacific. I mean, the Pacific wasn't cut as much as Africa, which was uh, aid to Africa was pretty much wiped out. Uh, aid to Asia went down by 40 percent. But there was this 10 uh, percent cut initially to aid to the Pacific. And so there was a feeling that, okay, we've got to cut aid uh, across the board. Uh, and it's only in the last couple of years that although total aid uh, has continued to fall, 
that aid to the Pacific's actually rebounded. And now we have this uh, situation. Um, again, I think it was a, a comment made uh, by Minister, the Minister for International Development, Alex Hawke, on your program, you know, where the government's sort of boasting uh, about our aid to the Pacific, that it's at a record level, right? And it just doesn't make sense that on the one hand, the same government that is imposing record cuts on the aid program should be boasting <laughs> that aid to the Pacific is, is at a record high. You know, I, I just think it's it's got to a sort of nonsensical stage. And, and it was brought home to me when I was looking at the recent uh, DFAP uh, documents on Pakistan. You know, Pakistan is one of the uh, aid programs in Asia that we've been cutting uh, in order to make room for more aid to the Pacific. And if you look at the uh, DFAP, uh, the latest DFAP uh, review on our aid to Pakistan, um, they, they're quite explicit about this, um, that our aid's been redirected to support uh, new initiatives in the immediate Pacific region. And in fact, uh, they, they say that not only has our aid been cut, but it's going to be abolished altogether uh, to Pakistan. Um, but at the same time, if you look at this document, you see, well, we're actually doing a lot of really good and important things in Pakistan. We're really making a difference uh, in the lives of tens of thousands of uh, Pakistani people, especially uh, women and girls. Yeah, I think it's just, it's the wrong thing to do, uh, to uh, cut aid uh, to one group of poor people in order to redirect it uh, elsewhere. You, you can argue about whether we should be increasing aid to the Pacific. You know, I'm, I'm personally somewhat skeptical about that, although I, I work a lot myself on PNG in the Pacific, but I think, you know, the region already is, it already is the most aid-dependent region in the world. I'm not sure more aid is the answer. But if the government does feel, you know, for strategic reasons, we need to give more aid to China, uh, then I think the answer is to increase the overall aid budget, right? Uh, not to uh, keep on cutting aid uh, elsewhere. Yeah, and I think it will remain to be seen what the consequence is of ending our aid program to Pakistan. I mean, I imagine it would be the first time in recent history that we haven't given aid to a country like Pakistan. It's hard to know precisely what the consequence of that will be and whether another country will step in and take over the aid investments that Australia was funding. Um, I think there's something quite opaque about the consequence of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's not something, you know, yeah, it's not something the government likes to talk about, right? I guess it's, it's, they'd rather just keep that quiet and, and focus on the good news and the good publicity around our, our aid to the Pacific. Um, but it is the it is the harsh reality that we are increasing aid to the Pacific uh, at the expense of our, our aid elsewhere. Um, and do you and- know, just, just before we move on from the topic of aid, do you know out of interest, are there exit strategies when we're ending our aid program to a particular country? I think there there are exit strategies in the sense that uh, you know we try not to disrupt existing contracts. Uh, so as much as possible, we honour our contractual uh, obligations. Um, so you know I think our aid officials do a good job of trying to minimise the pain. But um, yeah, ultimately, when you're ending uh, an aid program, uh, it's it's about managing the pain. You know you can't you can't avoid it. Uh, it's it's a reality of uh, of ending aid to any country. Yeah, certainly. 
Okay, so when we're talking about the Pacific, obviously aid is a topic that comes up a lot, but the other topic that comes up almost just as much, if not more, is labour, migration and visas. And so if you could start big picture, because admittedly this isn't a topic that we've covered in great detail on this show before, so I'm keen to start big picture with this. What challenges does a Pacific Islander face broadly um, wanting to do unskilled work in Australia? And is that different uh, for skilled work? Okay. Uh, well, Rachel, maybe I'll just start uh, with an even bigger picture, if you don't mind, and, and then come to you know, those specific questions. And uh, I, Because where I start is that, you know, if we're talking about development, then we don't want to only talk about aid. I mean, aid is important, and, and they're really important issues like we've just been discussing, but uh, it's by no means uh, the only um, aspect of development. And, and, in fact, normally it's not the most important aspect. So, you know, if we really think about the big picture, first of all, we need to think about uh, domestic policies and institutions. I mean, for most countries, uh, those, are the, those, are what, those are the most important. You know, I, I'm firmly in that, in that school that countries... Uh, really determine their own destiny. Uh, that's not to judge countries. That's just to acknowledge that different countries are at different points in their in their history and, and that we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking we can solve countries' problems for them. Um, but then when we're thinking about, well, what can rich countries do to help poor countries? Yeah, aid is one thing, but it's certainly not the only thing. And other, you know, really critical policies of developed countries that have an impact on developing or poorer countries are uh, their trade policies, um, their environmental policies, and then policies around migration. And, yeah, well, that brings us to the Pacific, because I think our uh, policies around migration uh, are really critical uh, for, the, uh, for the Pacific. And although we talk about, you know, the Pacific being family and uh, about our close and historic links uh, to the Pacific, in fact, it's remarkable just how few uh, Pacific Islanders there are in Australia. You know, if you look at the uh, the latest census, it's actually less than one percent of the Australian population uh, traces its uh, heritage uh, back to the Pacific. And if you look at our uh, Papua New Guineans, right? We, and you bear in mind, well, PNG is by far the biggest country in the Pacific, and it's the the one country that used to be uh, an Australian colony. Uh, the number of Papua New Guineans living in Australia is less than twenty thousand, right? Which is a just a tiny, a tiny fraction. Of our, of our total population. So I think the Pacific has missed out on uh, labour mobility opportunities uh, in Australia. Uh, first of all, it was um, disadvantaged by the white Australia policy. You know, obviously, Pacific didn't qualify under that. Uh, but then when we moved away from the white Australia policy, uh, we moved to a, a skill-based migration system, a points-based migration system. And uh, there just aren't the skill levels uh, in the Pacific to support high levels of migration under the point system. So, yeah, I think the Pacific's really missed out under Australia's uh, migration regime. And it's very different to New Zealand, right, where I think uh, almost 10% of the population uh, has, a, has a Pacific uh, heritage. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's a, a historical issue to be reckoned with there. Um, but it's also, you know, if we, if we do want to have closer integration with the Pacific, if we do want to provide the Pacific greater economic advantage, then, then labour mobility uh, is definitely something uh, that, that really should be uh, front and centre. And personally, I think the best thing about the increased focus on the Pacific and the Pacific step up is that we are now talking about labour mobility 
uh, from the Pacific to Australia. So to go to your questions, uh, you know, which are specifically, okay, well, what about if you are a Pacific Islander, you want to work in Australia? I mean, the good news is we do now have the seasonal worker program. And uh, that was introduced uh, some 10 years ago, uh, or actually more than 10 years ago now, uh, by uh, the Labor government. It was then uh, carried forward by uh, the by the coalition, and I think uh, you know that's really Julie Bishop's most positive legacy is the the backing she gave to the seasonal worker program, and that program has been growing very rapidly now for several years. And uh, most last year, I think some twelve thousand uh, Pacific Islanders uh, or citizens of the Pacific and of Timor Leste uh, were able to come to Australia and work on a farm uh, for up to nine months uh, to pick fruit and vegetables under that, that seasonal worker program. And it's an incredibly popular program. You know, there's massive demand uh, from the Pacific to get onto that program. Uh, most people uh, want to come back. You know, they don't just want to go once. They, they, they normally go like four or five times. Uh, just with the earnings uh, that you can get uh, on an Australian uh, minimum wage are far above uh, what you can earn uh, in, in the Pacific. Uh, of course, like any program, uh, no, no program is perfect. There have been cases of exploitation, uh, but it is a highly regulated program. So those cases that have involved unscrupulous employers have um, you know, made their way through the courts or those employers have been removed uh, from the program. Uh, so overall, it's, it's, it's a big success story uh, that we, we can build on. Uh, beyond seasonal work, we've now got um, a second scheme called the Pacific Labor Scheme. It's somewhat like the seasonal worker program, uh, but it's much more flexible. So instead of having a limit of nine months, uh, you can come for up to three years. And instead of having to work on a farm, uh, you can do any work uh, that an employer is willing to sponsor you for uh, outside of the capital cities. So as long as it's in a regional area. You could do so, of course, it incorporates farm work, non-seasonal farm work, but um, it also incorporates hospitality, uh, aged care. In fact, the most popular uh, category of employment so far has been uh, abattoir work. These are all areas, uh, you know, where it's hard to find Australians uh, to work. And I mean, I should mention under both schemes, uh, the employer has to do labour market testing. So they've first got to go and look for Australians. And only if they can't find Australian residents, it, uh, the employers can then uh, recruit under the SWP or the PLS. The PLS is still very small. Uh, it's only a couple of hundred, but it also has the uh, the potential to grow. And, um, yeah, I think both of these schemes are, you know, they're, they're not the end of the story, uh, but they're, they're a big improvement on what we had before. Uh, and, you know, unlike aid, where there's a very circuitous route and you, and you hope that at the end of the day uh, there will be benefits to ordinary people, uh, in with these schemes you are putting money direct into the pockets of Pacific workers and Pacific households, and it doesn't cost us anything, right? It benefits uh, the Australian economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, the, I mean, the, the um, Seasonal Workers Program and the Pacific Labor Scheme, both fantastic in sure. initiatives, and as you've said, not perfect, but um, making some great um, waves in terms of creating those economic opportunities for the Pacific. Do you think that there is a danger in having such a focus on unskilled labour from the Pacific in that optically we start viewing the Pacific as a source of unskilled labour only? 
how, I mean, we had Watna Mori on the show last week, who is a very successful Papua New Guinean human rights lawyer. And something I've spoken about with her a lot is how difficult it is for Papua New Guinean lawyers to work in Australia, and conversely, how easy it is for Australian lawyers to work in Papua New Guinea. So are we actually finding ways to simplify the process for skilled workers from the Pacific to come to Australia? Or do you think the emphasis has been um, mainly on unskilled labour? I'd say a couple of things. Uh, you know, first, you know, we we do have a skilled migration system in Australia. So, if you are a Pacific Islander uh, and you're you're skilled, then you can migrate uh, through the point system, uh, just like anyone else. Uh, it's true that there are very few uh, Pacific Islanders that actually migrate, you know, through our um, skilled visa system, um, but you know, they're, they're, the same standards are applied uh, across the board. Uh, so that, uh, I, I think those, those pathways are there. Uh, second, you know, under the Pacific Labor Scheme, uh, it does go up to uh, school level three. And so it does at least uh, accommodate semi-skilled. And there is this idea, we have the uh, Australia Pacific Technical College, which is an aid-funded uh, program. Uh, and there's this, this very good idea that's been around for quite a while now, but which, you know, now has uh, the hope of becoming operational, that we will uh, provide training uh, to Pacific Islanders through the APTC, and then they'll be able to migrate uh, to Australia, uh, either through the uh, Pacific Labor Scheme uh, or through the Skilled uh, Migration Program. So, yeah, I, I think uh, these, I, I pretty much agree with you, these are good initiatives, but they don't go far enough. And what, you know, I'd like to see uh, more forms of migration uh, from the Pacific in, in a variety of, way, variety of ways. You know, what New Zealand has a very interesting scheme, uh, which is uh, called the Pacific Access Quota. And that is actually a lottery. And uh, you can apply, you apply for the visa. Uh, you know, many more people apply uh, than there uh, is room for under the quota. Uh, but those who are successful in the lottery then have the chance to look for a job and they can look for any job. It could be unskilled or skilled. And if they get the job, you know, within the pe fixed period of time they're allowed, then they and their whole family can migrate to Australia. And I think that's a great uh, scheme. And that would you know, that scheme explains why uh, the Pacific has a much greater diaspora in New Zealand than it does uh, in Australia. If we had a similar kind of scheme in Australia, we would build up the Pacific diaspora in Australia. That would strengthen the migration pathways and that would make it easier for the Pacific Islanders also to access uh, our regular uh, migration uh, scheme. And, and that would be real integration. And, you know, I know people are worried about brain drain and, and the best and the brightest leaving. But I think, uh, you know, the opposite can also apply. Um, you know, and people, when they come to Australia, they, they don't lose contact with their home country. Uh, and they, they often, you know, will work in both. They'll, they'll choose to, to return. They'll bring skills back to their country. So, yeah, I think the, we've made a good start with the uh, SWP and the, the PLS, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, the other observation that I've had, having worked a lot in the Pacific over um, recent years and seeing Chinese-funded infrastructure projects, um, primarily roads, 
What I always notice is that those Chinese-funded infrastructure programs are almost entirely staffed by Chinese labourers. It's very rare to see Pacific labourers on those Chinese-funded projects, in my experience. And I think it's a it's a criticism of Chinese-funded infrastructure that doesn't come up a lot, um, that they're not actually creating that many jobs um, in contrast to infrastructure projects funded by the multilateral banks and others. So in light of the fact that Australia is looking to fund more infrastructure in the Pacific, um, is there a possibility that we'll be able to create more opportunities for Pacific labourers in their home countries? Uh, Sure. I mean, I will just, um, you know, I I have a slightly different uh, experience. I was actually in in PNG last year in Chimbu and uh, saw a couple of massive road projects, of course, with uh, Chinese supervisors, but lots of PNG workers. So maybe China's also learning that it doesn't make sense uh, just to bring your own labor force. And, you know, it's very expensive. And also, you know, you're really going to antagonize your hosts if you don't provide employment opportunities. Um, so just to put in a, a good word or, or just a, a different experience of the Chinese approach. Um, but yeah, in terms of Australia, uh, yeah, we'd certainly uh, expect Australia to uh, provide lots of local employment opportunities. And I think one, you know, I've said a few critical things about the aid program uh, in our conversation. So to put in a positive plug, if you look at the design document for the new uh, Pacific Infrastructure Initiative, the $2 billion, uh, the the Australian um, Infrastructure Financing Facility for the Pacific, uh, it does have a section on on employment. And it talks about the, uh, the imperative to not only hire uh, local staff, but to train them up to provide training opportunities. And it says that, you know, it's not just going to rely on contractors to do that, but it's going to put this in as uh, contractual requirements. And so I think that's, you know, that's a great, uh, that, that's the right approach. And, um, you know, we're still at the start of the AIFFP, but good to see it built into the, into the design document from the start. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, that's a really interesting discussion on labour and migration. I think to close, um, being in academia yourself, it would be really good um, to understand the connection between academics and the NGO sector a little better. Um, And I've heard you speak about this before and have always found it really fascinating. So how can academics and NGOs work better together and what value do they offer one another? Yeah, you know, I do think uh, I've long thought there's a, there is a natural or there should be a natural partnership <clears throat> between academics on the one hand and NGOs on the other. Uh, in terms of what academics have to offer NGOs, I guess it's uh, some of that that expertise and uh, and rigor um, and and also credibility. Uh, and in, in terms of what NGOs have to offer academics, uh, it's really uh, you know NGOs are conducting experiments. Right. It goes back to that idea of aid being about innovation. You know, NGOs are out there trying new things, um, at least for a particular area. It's, area, it's new, maybe new for the country. It may be new for the, for the whole world. Uh, so uh, NGOs are offering, uh, offering up experiments uh, and, and academics are out there looking for experiments. Right. We're, what can we do our research on? You know, there's been so much theoretical research, um, so much research on, on global trends. Um, but, you know, the real focus now is on, you know, experiments at the local level, what works, uh, what doesn't work. 
if, if you look at the Nobel Prize uh, for economics, you know, which is always a good indicator of where economics is heading, uh, this year it went to three economists who have really uh, pioneered and promoted the use of randomized control trials uh, in economics. And, you know, what are randomized control trials? They're just a particular type of experiment uh, where, you know, one group receives the intervention and a control group doesn't. And you assess the success of the intervention by whether the um, intervention group is doing better than the control group. Now, that's not all NGOs uh, offer interventions that are suitable uh, to that type of analysis. It has to be something uh, clearly where there are, um, whether, or anyway, without giving you too much detail, uh, normally it's going to be something where there's an individual benefit. And, and then you can assess whether individuals uh, in the experiment are doing better than those individuals in the control group. Uh, but the general point is that that's just, it's just one type of experiment. So uh, economics uh, in particular is heading very much down this experimental route. Uh, NGOs uh, offer up experiments. And so academics uh, have got a lot to gain by working with NGOs. Yeah, and I think that being a natural partnership between academics and NGOs has only increased in recent years as this um, fascination with the concept of evidence-based programs has really increased in popularity. And you hear most NGOs nowadays talking about their programs being evidence-based. So I'm interested, what does evidence-based and effectiveness mean to academia? Yeah, well, it is a, it is a real dilemma, uh, I, I think. I mean, you know, no one can argue um, with the need to be evidence-based. Um, I think academics might sometimes have slightly higher standards of, of what counts as evidence, um, but I think we'd all share that, that general uh, aspiration um, but yeah, the difficulty comes, it's you know, similar to what I was talking about with uh, innovation exchange. In, in principle, we all accept uh, the idea that not all aid is going to work, that some projects are going to fail, but no one wants to be the one uh, with that failed project, right? because uh, at the end of the day, we're all out there trying to raise money and, and who's going to back a failure. Uh, so I think it, it is a, is a real tension and we, we, we shouldn't deny it. Um, we shouldn't deny the difficulty involved. Um, and, you know, certainly if you look at NGO websites, uh, you'll find lots of claims to success uh, and very few admissions of failure. Uh, so, you know, what's the way uh, around this? Um, I, yeah, I think one is accepting that it, there, there is always going to be an, an inherent tension. Um, but the second, I think, is to embody, uh, you know, not just a learning culture, but to be explicit that part of the value uh, of what we're doing is that we are learning uh, as we go. Um, and I think, in, you know, what I found, I'm, I'm you know, involved uh, with a NGO, with a Papua New Guinean NGO that works on domestic violence. And certainly that's a very uh, difficult area to work in. It's sometimes difficult to know uh, what's working, uh, but certainly not everything is working and not everything that we do, um, you know, provides success. Uh, but I think having a, uh, that view that, you know, we're here for the long term is it's really important from a, uh, a number of perspectives. Um, you know, most development problems aren't going to be solved overnight. Uh, most development problems can only be solved by the local people uh, and, and they need time to, to sort out the, the solutions. 
But having this long-term perspective, is also, it also helps us uh, deal with this dilemma uh, around wanting to be evidence-based but not wanting to admit failure because it means you can say, okay, well, you know, we're trying different things. Uh, we're going to see what with what works, but we're going to stick with it. You know, we're not going to give up. Uh, we're not going to uh, walk away. We're going to keep going uh, until we've uh, succeeded because this is a critical problem. I take take providing effective services to domestic violence. Uh, it is a critical problem. It's got to be solved. It's going to take time and it, it's going to take experimentation. Uh, so I think having that kind of uh, long-term attitude and, and and expressing a sense of commitment. Uh, not necessarily uh, or unrealistically uh, to being successful all the time, but commitment to being there and, and to working through and to, and to staying the course. I think that that does help um, with this uh, evidence-based uh, dilemma that we've we've just been discussing. I completely agree, and I think that's really good. Uh, a really good feedback for NGOs to hear and I hope that more of our listeners will explore ways that they can work more closely with academia um, because as you've said I think there's an enormous possibility there and mutual benefit to be gained. Um, Stephen thank you so much for being on the show I've really enjoyed chatting to you. And that's it for today. You may have noticed that we had to switch from mobile to laptop towards the end there so there was a slight change in the audio quality but not a change in the quality of the content. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I'd really like to encourage you to join the conversation. Share your thoughts via our social media channels or feel free to contact me directly via our website if you've got any reflections or questions that you'd like to share. Also, for those of you listening to this episode before Monday the 2nd of December 2019, there's a great episode of Q&A coming up featuring two of our past guests, the former Tuvaluan Prime Minister NLA Sopoago and the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Alex Hawke. So that's on Monday the 2nd of December on ABC and it's being recorded live from Suva. Okay, that's it from me. See you next week.